to City Breaks Bath, Episode 10, Theatre. Theatre has such a long and illustrious history in Bath that I really wanted to tell its story. If you get a chance to go to the Theatre Royal in Bath, you'll soon see that it's one of Britain's most elegant Regency theatres. A glorious spectacle of red and cream and gold, balconies, chandeliers, the works. A building absolutely oozing history, although, as we'll come to in a minute, it certainly wasn't the first theatre in Bath but also an institution which keeps up to date, has every year some of the most popular West End plays on tour, often just before they are put on on the West End stage, and yet also somewhere where you can see some of the most up-to-date productions. Truly an institution, and a piece of the city's history, because it opened in 1805. But care has always been taken to keep the history, to retain the flavour of one of Britain's most elegant Regency theatres, opened over 200 years ago. But first, let's go back in history a little bit and look at what was happening in Bath, theatre-wise, before 1805. So we know that, in common with many other towns, in the 1600s, and almost certainly earlier than that too, there were touring theatre troops coming to the city, playing at the Guildhall, and in some of the inn courtyards around the city. So people could stop what they were doing, gather round, and watch the visiting troupe of actors playing out sometimes new and very often familiar stories. As early as 1705, there was an actual theatre built in Bath, paid for by one George Trim. It was very small, it had one box for four people, a little stage, seating for a few more, and it was often rented out to private citizens who would lay on a performance for their guests. So that was putting theatre on a slightly more formal footing than it had been previously, but nevertheless remaining small-scale, rather exclusive, not for everybody. However, things changed quite significantly in 1728, because in that theatre was put on a performance of John Gay's Beggar's Opera. In fact, it was performed here for the first time anywhere outside London, and it represented a very new kind of entertainment, because it was a sort of mockery of Italian opera. So the story was told through song, but the big difference between it and all the other operas staged heretofore was that the story revolved very much around low-life characters, and the songs they were singing were based on the tunes of popular ballads, so people could come along, enjoy stories that weren't just about counts and royalty and people they couldn't really identify with, and hear music that they recognised and sing along with it. Must have been a bit of a gamble, but it did go down very well. In fact, it turned into the 18th century's biggest commercial hit. So that put the idea of going to the theatre in Bath much more into the minds of people who perhaps hadn't done that up until then. Sadly, however, only a few years later, 1737, Trim's Theatre was demolished to make way for a very important building that we've already heard about, namely the Mineral Water Hospital. However, by this point, the idea of having a theatre in Bath had really taken root, and so it was proposed that a new one should be built, which was done on a site of former orchards belonging to the Abbey, some spare land really, but the fact that it was built there led to it being known as Orchard Street Theatre. It was originally very small, although it was gradually enlarged, boxes were built, a standing gallery was put in around the theatre, one level up, so it was becoming somewhere where lots of people could gather together and enjoy a play. And it opened, in fact, with the performance of Henry IV Part I. An acting company was formed around the theatre, 
We know, for example, that by 1767 there were 23 actors on the payroll and that the theatre had been awarded a royal patent by George III himself. And so it became the first theatre royal anywhere in the provinces. There were at that stage two in London, Covent Garden and Drury Lane, but Bath was the very next place where a royal theatre was created. So by this time they're on a roll, so more enlargements are being done. Seven new boxes installed, one of which is said to have held up to 30 people. And although the theatre had to close down for a year or two to enable this work to be done, it reopened with quite a fanfare in 1774 with a performance of Macbeth. By this time, theatre-going in Bath was becoming quite the pastime. Audience numbers were growing, a wider range of plays was put on, and the theatre's reputation was much enhanced with the arrival of somebody who became very famous, and that is the actress Sarah Siddons, who actually spent five years working here in Bath before she transferred to Drury Lane Theatre in London, where she became a national and in fact eventually an international star. I've seen her described as the leading tragedienne of her age. Her first performance in Bath was in October 1777 in a play called The Provoked Husband, and we know that in her first season she played more than 20 different roles, and it's believed that in the five years that she was there, she actually played over a 100 different roles. We know that she started on a wage of £3 a week, and that the theatre management, who must have been pleased to have her because she was so popular, and attracted large crowds. But nevertheless, they wanted their money's worth. They worked her very hard, so her days would be filled with rehearsals and performances, and they thought nothing of rushing her over to Bristol on certain days to appear there too. She was massively popular, and so after five years in Bath, when she decided to leave and go to London, it really was quite an event for the city. Her last performance was very crowded, and she surprised everybody, because at the end of the play, she brought her three children onto the stage and explained, in a verse which she'd written herself, that she was having to go off to London in order to earn more money because she had these three children to bring up. So picture the scene then, the theatre's full, there she is on the stage at the end of her last performance, on come, very unexpectedly, the three children, and Mrs Siddons holds the entire theatre captive by reading out, with a flourish and all in verse, her reasons for leaving. So here's an extract from what she wrote. Stand forth, ye elves, and plead your mother's cause, ye little magnets, whose soft influence draws me from a point where every gentle breeze wafted my bark to happiness and ease, sends me adventurous upon a larger main, in hopes that you may profit by my gain. I bet there wasn't a dry eye in the house, and Bath has always been proud that she started her career here on their stage and then went on to become so famous. I think she really must have been very talented, because we have a letter written by David Garrick in 1779, the leading actor of his day, who described her as follows. An excellent actress, who I really think is as much mistress of her business as any female I ever saw. Her Portia, Belvedere, and other pathetic parts in tragedy are, I think, exquisitely fine. And here's a very effusive write-up that she got in the Bath Herald, one of the Bath newspapers of the day. It pointed out that all her performances sold out and tried to explain exactly how very popular she was. Quote, Her whole performance was the emanation of genius and inspiration, 
it was honoured by the best applause, riveted attention whilst on stage, and the loudest plaudits at every exit. So, round about this time, at the very end of the 18th century, it was becoming clear that the theatre in Bath was really too small. In the 60 years or so since the Orchard Street Theatre had opened, the population of Bath had grown roughly ten times bigger. The idea of the Bath season had equally grown. More and more people were coming to the city for visits and to do the season. Theatre-going was very much part of that season, one of the popular evening entertainments, and it all pointed to the fact that a new, much bigger theatre was needed. So the Orchard Street Theatre would have to be closed, and the final performance took place on the 15th of July, 1805, a performance of a play called The Honeymoon. And after that, the theatre, which had given by this stage over 5,000 performances, closed down. Went dark, as I believe they say in theatre terms. You can, in fact, still visit the building today. You can see the stage. You can see the original loft with all the ropes and pulleys that were used to move the scenery about. And you can hear a talk from a guide explaining the history of the building since it closed as a theatre. It did become a church for a period, and then it became a Masonic Hall. And as part of the tour, if you go around today, you will be shown a tiny little museum dedicated to the Freemasons. And excitingly then, you can stand by the stage and imagine those performances taking place over 200 years ago. You'll notice from the dates that, of course, it was in its heyday in the period when Jane Austen was in the city. We know for certain that the Austen family were very interested in theatre. They used to do their own amateur dramatic performances, for example. We're pretty sure they went to the theatre, and so we have to assume that Jane herself attended plays here. And what we can be even more certain about is the fact that her characters came to plays here. Here's an extract, for example, from Persuasion. Quote, well, mother, I have done something for you that you will like. I have been to the theatre and secured a box for tomorrow night. I know you love a play, and there is room for us all. It holds nine. I have engaged Captain Wentworth. Anne will not be sorry to join us. So, with the closing of the Orchard Street Theatre, one chapter of history was finished, but the new theatre opened on the 12th of October, 1805. And that's the one that's still there today, well over two centuries later. It was very much admired as soon as it was opened. A contemporary, for example, wrote, quote, There are three tiers of boxes, excessively lofty. The decorations are very splendid, especially the ceilings. In the 200-plus years since that first performance of Richard III, which is the play that was chosen for the opening night, there's certainly been a chequered history of rebuilds and refurbishments and problems and difficult periods which somehow had to be got through. There was a major disaster, for example, in 1862, when fire broke out. The theatre closed during the Great Depression in the 1930s. It did survive the Blitz. In fact, it remained open during the war. The 1980s was a period of major renovations after a huge fundraising campaign. In 1989, an extra little theatre was added, known as the Ustinoff Studio. And in 2005, the special children's theatre, The Egg, also opened. So, I wanted to run through some of the absolute performance highlights, starting with 1815, when the famous clown Joseph Grimaldi played a role in Mother Goose. 
When the theatre reopened after the fire of 1862, the very first performance was Midsummer Night's Dream, starring the actress Ellen Terry as Titania. The 1890s saw lots of performances of Gilbert and Sullivan operas. And in the 1920s, the famous Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova danced here. Through World War II, performances were still put on. John Gielgud appeared in some of them, Sybil Thorndike alongside him. And in 1982, after the closure for major refurbishments, there was a gala reopening, another performance of Midsummer Night's Dream, and this time attended by Princess Margaret. Plays by the writer Richard Brinsley Sheridan are very much connected with the theatre. He lived in Bath, he set some of his plays in Bath. They were staples of the programme in the 18th century, and ever since they have been chosen on occasions when something special was required. So, for example, in 2005, which was the 200th anniversary of the theatre, a production of The Rivals was one of the celebrations. In 2010, after another refurbishment, the theatre reopened again with The Rivals, and in 2012, the very first summer season took place, so three in-house productions were directed by specially invited guest directors, and one of those in that first year was Sheridan's The School for Scandal. I think the best description I found of Richard Brinsley Sheridan was one in the book called Sometimes in Bath, which described him as follows. Irishman, wit, playwright, parliamentarian, eloper from Bath with the beautiful singer Elizabeth Lindley, jewellist for her honour, and creator of Mrs Malaprop, the word-mangling wonder of his famed play set in the city. So, a larger-than-life character for sure. He'd been educated at Harrow, and he moved to Bath with his family in 1770, promptly fell in love with the daughter of one of the city's most famous musical families, the Lindleys, Elizabeth Lindley, who unfortunately was being pursued by someone else, someone in fact described as the Welsh squire Thomas Matthews of Clandaff. Elizabeth ran off to France to take refuge in a nunnery. Sheridan went with her, returning afterwards to Bath to fight not one but two duels with Thomas Matthews, and eventually marrying Elizabeth despite the fact that both their families were very much against the idea. One of his best-known plays, The Rivals, opened in London in 1775 at Covent Garden Theatre, but it was set in Bath and it wasn't long until it was brought to the city and played here as well. So it's the story of one Lydia Languish, who is determined to marry for love, despite the fact that Jack, on whom she has set her heart, doesn't have any money and her aunt objects to him. This is a problem, because the aunt is very rich and she's going to leave Lydia her fortune, but not, in fact, if she insists on marrying Jack. It's a very complicated plot, and I would hate to spoil it for you by telling you everything that happens, so let's instead just enjoy one or two little extracts from The Rivals. So the very opening scene introduces some of the characters who are, yes, in a street in Bath. The character named Fag bumps unexpectedly into the character named Thomas and seems surprised to see him, so he says, I'm devilish glad to see you, my lad. Why, my prince of charioteers, you look as hearty. But who the deuce thought of seeing you in Bath? To which Thomas replies that he and various other people have all just arrived in a carriage, so presumably they've come to Bath for the season. Thomas says, Sure, master, Madam Julia, Harry, Mrs Kate and the postillion be all come. 
There are scenes in North Parade. There are scenes in South Parade. A duel is fought in Kingsmead Fields, just outside Bath. So it absolutely is set in and around the city. It was a very popular play. It was funny. It was fast-moving. And best of all, it had the character Mrs. Malaprop. So she's the one who mangles all her words, usually to comic effect. Her name comes from the French. Malapropo means inappropriate, and her speciality is indeed using words very inappropriately. So examples from the play would include a character describing another as being the pineapple of politeness, meaning pinnacle of politeness. When Lydia is entreated to forget all about Jack, Mrs. Malaprop advises her to, quote, illiterate him quite from your memory. So all of this proved very popular, made Sheridan well-known, kept theatre and indeed Bath in the minds of all the theatre-going public. For a bit more of a flavour of Sheridan's work, here are the plot notes on his other play, The School for Scandal, which opened again in London at Drury Lane Theatre in 1777, but which played many times after that in Bath. And the programme notes on one of the occasions when it was performed in Bath give a good idea of the complexity of the plot and the humour and general poking fun which are contained within it. So this is what they wrote. Quote, Sir Peter Teasel has married a young country girl in the hope that she will be too innocent to cause him any bother, but his aims are thwarted when she takes up with the most outrageous set of scandalmongers in town, Lady Sneerwell, Mrs Cander, and Sir Benjamin Backbite, who thrive on making mayhem from malicious tittle-tattle. Add into the equation the notorious playboy, Charles Surface, his brother Joseph, an apparently honourable gentleman, Sir Peter's ward, the gossip-loathing Maria, with whom both brothers are in love, and an array of servants, both upright and downright wicked. And the scene is set for this classic English comedy of manners, which relishes every opportunity to poke fun at the society in which it is set. So that covers then a few of the well-known plays associated with Bath's theatrical history. And it seems a good idea just to make a brief mention of the role of music in entertainment in Bath, through history and currently. A tradition which, like so many other things in Bath, dates particularly from the Bonash era. It's known that Bonash, who presided over the pump rooms and the entertainments generally in the city, engaged musicians to play there, played quite a role in deciding what they were and weren't allowed to do and play. One of his rules, for example, was no innovations. There's a whole book written on the Pump Room Orchestra in Bath by Robert and Nicola Hyman, and they explain how it all came about. Quote, During the winter season, the band played in a pump room from half past eight to ten in the morning. Known to many as Nash's Band, the musicians moved around the pump rooms using portable music stands. It is probable that Abbey organist Thomas Dean and his successor, Josias Priest, played harpsichord in the pump room band. The music served as a backdrop in a socially diverse venue where people went to take the waters and met for conversation and gossip. The pump room band is believed to be the country's first residential seasonal orchestra to play in a room where the public assembled. And in fact there's been a tradition of fine classical music ever since in the pump rooms. And the ins and outs of all the various periods of history are explained in much interesting detail by the Hymans in their book. Indeed, if you go to the pump room today, perhaps to take tea, 
and there's a little musical entertainment playing in the background, you can know that you're following a tradition started there well over 200 years ago. There's an article from the Bath Herald, so one of the local newspapers, from the 2nd of November, 1799, also explaining how popular the band was. Quote, The Pump Room Band is one of the oldest and best establishments of this place. It draws the visitor and the inhabitants from the most distant parts of the city to one general place of morning rendezvous. There, long-parted friends indulge in unexpected meetings, whilst the inspiring melody of the orchestra spreads a general glow of happiness. And then the person who wrote that article gets down to practicalities and explains that the whole thing was paid for by the subscriptions which Beau Nash took from people as they arrived in Bath, which were then used for various purposes to fund the various entertainments and balls that were put on. The newspaper is very much in favour of all of this and points out that local businessmen really ought to chip in because they too have much to gain. Quote, it undoubtedly draws the company down to their shops and so it particularly behoves them to give it every assistance and support by their subscriptions and recommendation. So it was really an early form of tourism, in fact, something attractive to draw people in, which would be very nice for those going to listen and very useful for the people who's had businesses roundabout who would then get lots of passing traffic. And for a description of a musical highlight in the city in the year 1779, Here's an extract from the journal of one Edmund Rack. Actually, his book is entitled A Desultory Journal of Events at Bath, which sounds a little cynical, but Mr Rack did in fact find himself very enthusiastic about the concert he'd been to one evening at the assembly rooms. Quote, I went hither and found the most brilliant assembly my eyes had ever beheld. The elegance of the room, illuminated with 480 wax candles, the prismatic colours of the lustres, by that he means chandeliers, the blaze of jewels, and the inconceivable harmony of near forty musicians, some of whom are the finest hands in Europe, added to the rich attire of about eight hundred gentlemen and ladies, was altogether a scene of which no person who never saw it can form any adequate idea. It began at half past six and ended at ten. The highest decorum was observed throughout the whole, the concertos by Lamotte and Fisher surpass all description. On the violin and oboe, they are not equalled by any performer in Europe. So again, in music as in theatre, Bath really was one of the centres, particularly in the 18th century. Certainly a rival to London, and in the eyes of that writer at least, a rival actually to anywhere in Europe. So I hope I've given you a picture of the very finest of theatre and music that was available in Bath over 200 years ago, and also, in fact, of the idea that both traditions, theatre and music, are continued today. You can still go to the pump rooms and be entertained, perhaps by a quartet, and you can certainly get a ticket for the Theatre Royal and sit in those sumptuous surroundings, very much recalling the glory days of 1805 when the building was opened. In fact, for the full Bath experience, I fully recommend that you go for long enough to do both of those things. I'm very much now coming towards the end of the episodes I've planned on Bath itself, although there will be two or three more on possible days out from the city. But just before I get on to those, there'll be one more episode next week, an anthology of Bath, in which I'm planning to squeeze in 
lots of the readings from history writers, travel writers and men and women of literature, for which I wasn't able to find room earlier in the series. I found lots of interesting snippets, everything from the unknown travel writer right up to the extremely well-known Charles Dickens and Jane Austen, both of whom set novels in the city. So overall, really quite a varied picture. I hope very much that you'll be able to join me for that. And meanwhile, we'd just like to thank you very much for listening and say goodbye. <laughs>